our kids, they can head back to their kids' classes, uh, nursery and our, our kids' class. Um, as always, I'll just say, pay attention to the adults that are walking back with them. Thank them before you leave church today. <laughs> church, I just want to say, you know, there have been times when I've been up front uh, leading worship every week. Um, there's been times when I, I've needed to lead worship while also doing the preaching here at the church. Um, and I just want to say it is a joy to get to share not only the pulpit with gifted brothers who have brought the word to us other weeks, like Scott last week, um, but it's also a joy to get to share um, in the musical leading here, here at the church um, that we've got, and God has really gifted us with some great musicians. Uh, those who aren't just good musicians, but love, deeply love the Lord. And so it's just a joy. Today I was sitting out, I don't know whatever row that is, um, and my daughter is just a couple seats down. I can hear her singing, and just beyond her, I could hear some of the other kids singing as well. Um, and that's just a joy, isn't it? Um, to hear the sound of kids. Um, sometimes it's not as, as pleasant as sound, right? Sometimes. Um, and yet, what are kids in the church? Kids are life, right? And so we rejoice in what the Lord has blessed us with. As we come into the time of the Word today, I want us to consider something, and I want you to hear this really well. Not everyone who meets Jesus gets saved. Not everyone who's healed by Jesus follows him. Not everyone who is taught by Jesus learns. Church, there are some who think they're saved who are not. I just want us to pause and think on that for just a moment. You know, I often say that anybody who has a genuine encounter with Jesus cannot possibly walk away unaffected, untransformed, unchanged. The trouble is, is that not everybody has a genuine encounter with Jesus. Today we're going to be looking at Jesus' prayer for his disciples, for his followers. We're in John chapter 17, and I'd invite you to turn there in your Bibles or can use your phone if need be. We're looking at Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is his prayer, interceding for his disciples, those whom he loves, and who have loved and followed him. Last week, Scott brought us through the first verses of this prayer, the part of the prayer that focused on Jesus' own relationship with his father, the eternal son's relationship with Father God. Now, in the section we're going to be looking at this week and next week, Jesus is focused on those who have a relationship with him. And I want to read these verses for us. I hope you look along with me as I do so. So John chapter 17, verse 6, hear the word of the Lord. This is Jesus' prayer. Can I just say that before we start reading this? This is Jesus' prayer, and if you're a Christian, this is Jesus' prayer for you, okay? He says, I have manifested your name, that's God's name, to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now we're going to pause here for today. And what we're going to look at today is, is really the question, who are Jesus' disciples? Who are those to whom he is praying? Now, 
Next week, we're going to look at what he is praying for his disciples. But as I started looking at this passage, I opened up one of my favorite commentaries on the book of John, and that author had no less than 12 separate sermons for what we're going to cover this week and next. And I looked at it and I thought, how in the world can anybody talk about this in a week or two? I mean, that guy's way smarter than I am. I need like 85 weeks to really cover this. And so here's the honest truth, friends. We're not going to say even half of what needs to be said about this passage over the next two weeks. Maybe not even a quarter, maybe not even an eighth. I don't even know. What that means is that every one of us should go home today and read this over and over again. Maybe every day this week and every day next week. Just read over John chapter 17. This is significant, these, these verses here. Why? Because Jesus is praying. Not generically, not generally, but for his disciples. These are the things he wants for them. This should matter to us. I mean, what does Jesus want for you? Well, it says it right here in these verses. And friends, it, it pains me that I cannot say everything that, need to be, that needs to be said. You guys know me. If you've been here at our church very long, you know that I can easily take an hour and a half for a message. A couple weeks ago, I joked about taking three and then realized at an hour and a half that I had gone an hour and a half. And the really cool thing to your all's credit is that not a one of you got up and left at 45 minutes. Today, I'm aiming to be a little bit shorter than that. Because I want you to really hear what we do say today. Who are they whom Jesus was praying for? Now, what you need to know before we even get any further is that those to whom Jesus are praying for in this passage have names. Their names are Peter, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, James, John, Matthew, Simon, Thomas, James, Judas, not Iscariot, so not the one who betrayed Jesus, of course. Their names are also Mary Magdalene and Martha and Lazarus. Among them is named a man named Zacchaeus, who had been a tax collector, and there are others. There are those to whom Jesus is praying who have no recorded names. We know them only as the two men that Jesus encountered on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. And there are others, of course, those whom he ministered to, those he taught, and those he healed. Jesus is literally praying in this passage, in this sect of passages, for a group of people who existed at that time. He's praying for people that he had walked with up to three years, who he had spent every day, every moment with for the last three years. Others had come along in just the last week or two weeks or the last six months. But what you need to know is that not everyone that Jesus encountered is counted in this prayer. There are some who came and left. There's Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who would again return, and we think next time in belief, but who at this time likely is not counted amongst the disciples. There was the rich young ruler, the one who departed when he decided that the cost of following Jesus was simply too great. He would not sell everything he had in exchange for the kingdom of God, in exchange for the greatest treasure. We talked about that just a couple weeks ago, if you were here. There was, of course, also Judas Iscariot, the pretender, the one who had followed Jesus for three years but had never actually known him. The one who sat at Jesus' feet for three years and talked with him and asked questions and still didn't know him. And that should give some of us pause, at least a little bit, right? I mean, here's a guy who walked and talked with Jesus, but he just pretended to follow him and pretended to know what he was all about. Some of us, we don't even do that with our lives. There are those we read about in Scripture who came to Jesus and left unsatisfied, unchanged, and unsaved. And church, what you need to know is that Jesus is not praying for them in this. 
He's not. He says in this passage, and it's what we're going to look at today with the bulk of our time, who it is that he's praying for. And it's not those who have come before Christ and found Christ to be wanting and found Christ to be unworthy of their whole lives. So let's take a look at who Jesus says he's praying for. Number one, Jesus is praying for the elect. Now just real quick, Scott talked about the elect last week. There are those of us who would love to not talk about the elect, the, the reality in Scripture, and the, the pretty clear teaching in Scripture that, that God chooses those whom are going to follow him. There are different ways that different Christians interpret that and come to understand that, but Scripture is, is really clear that, that it is a truth. That he is the first cause of any of us ever getting the chance to choose Scott talked about the elect last week. I think he did a pretty good job. You should go back and listen to what he said if you weren't here. But also, let me just remind you, Romans 8, 29-30. Hear these words. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What you need to see is that there are those whom God foreknew from the beginning that he called into election, and those people carry on no matter what to the point of glorification. That's the, the path that God has set us on. This, of course, and you need to hear this well, does not take away from either our personal responsibility of our sins or our own will in following God. God is big enough to allow for you and I who are small enough to hold tensions we don't quite understand fully together, which is why that we can say that God is totally 100% sovereign over our salvation, and yet we are fully Culpable. We are moral agents responsible for what we do and what we don't do. And we hold those things in tension because the Bible affirms both. The truth of God's sovereign control and our personal responsibility are held in tension with each other. And we see that a bit here. And I want to return to Jesus' words, his simple words in this prayer. He says what? Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world, for they, yours they were, and you gave them to me. Who is Jesus praying for? He's praying for the elect. He's praying for those who have belonged to God from the very beginning of time, from the moment of the conception of time and the earth, and humanity, God knew exactly who would glorify him in the end. And so he's praying for those people. They've belonged to the Lord from the beginning. They will continue to belong to the Lord all the way through the end. He's praying for them. See, this is greater than just that all things belong to God, which is a truth we should understand. Right? The Lord is the maker. God made everything, the heavens and the earth. He made humanity. He made you. He made me. And because he made us, guess what? He gets to do with us what he wants to do. We are his. But Jesus isn't just talking about this in that kind of generic sense. He is saying, look, they were yours from the beginning, and you gave them to me. This is a beautiful thing. And as we wrestle and we struggle and we grasp the biblical truth that God is sovereign over salvation, we need to see that this is truly a beautiful thing. Because what it means is that our salvation is because of him and not us. Friends, if we were Christian, if we were saved, if we were destined for eternity in heaven because of us, then we could also subsequently be not destined for those things because of us. Our eternal destination and our daily disposition with the Lord 
is rightly dependent on God. For if it were dependent on how we feel or how we think or how we live day to day, not one of us would have a secure future in Christ. Because day to day, you feel lost, and so do I. Day to day, we think wrongly because we live in sin, right? If it were up to us and who we are on any given day, we would be the most wishy-washy people ever. But because our salvation rests on him and on him alone, we get to be confident, anchored, steady every day. Even when life is wishy-washy, even when the waves are trying to toss us to and fro. This is why the theology of election, of having been chosen by him, his will is so beautiful. Because it means that even tomorrow, when I have my inevitable post-Sunday low, which by the way, Monday is always my lowest day of the week, I can rest and be steady in him. Because it's not up to me. It's not up to how I performed on Sunday morning. It's not up to whether or not one of you decides to follow Jesus today that gives me hope or not. It's not up to what I see on Facebook from our church that causes me to despair and think that nothing good is going on, which happens periodically. Be careful what you post to Facebook. Your pastor's reading it. It's beautiful, church. It is beautiful that we get to rely on God. Amen? So Jesus is, first of all, praying for the elect. Second, he is praying for those for whom he has been given. Or they have been given. Sorry. Jesus is praying for those who are given to him. Again, this is given in the sovereignty of God. And I want you to pay attention here. I don't want you to miss this. It's also really important that we're given to Christ by the one who already held us secure before we even knew him. Because if we were not given, then how did we come? If we are not a gift from the, of the Father to the Son, then how is it that we came to salvation? Was it because some preacher stood up in front of a group of people and eloquently spoke in such a way that convinced us to believe? Was it the work of, of, of an apologist who defended the faith in some amazing way and suddenly we realize that we've been wrong all these years and thank God that that person spoke up? Would it be because we were convinced by a good argument? I mean, what if the, that good argument had never been made? What if that Christian had never knocked on our door? What if that pastor had never taken the time to talk with us? I want you to think on Jesus here for a minute. Jesus is the most encouragement a discouraged pastor could ever have. Think on Jesus for a minute. He spent a lifetime, but really three years, devoting every minute, every moment of his time to a handful of people who would betray him, leave him, run from him, lie for him or against him. And in the end, after three years, have a congregation barely bigger than Calvary Lahana. Just think on that for a minute. He's the creator of the universe. He made every single person he ever ministered to. He healed literally thousands and thousands of people. He cast out demon after demon after demon. And yet at the end of three years of ministry, how many people followed him? Our max number, according to the book of Acts chapter 1, is 120. 120. Why is it that Jesus couldn't convince thousands and thousands of people to follow him while he was here? Why is it that he couldn't heal people into the kingdom of God? Why is it that over and over again he is frustrated with the people that follow him? It's because they hadn't been given to him. When I got saved, I got saved on the waterfront of a summer camp. There were about 45 of us on the waterfront between the ages of about 12 and 18. That's, that, that Friday night, it was a Friday night, Every single kid on that waterfront raised their hand to accept Jesus. Every single kid. Now, 
I don't know where they all are. I don't know if their conversions were authentic, but I do know a lot of them are still Christians and still following the Lord, and a whole bunch of them are in ministry right now. Because Facebook, <laughs> right? You see those people you went to camp with when you were 13. You're like, hey, it's so cool. What in the world would make the preacher on that Friday night a better preacher than Jesus? Just think on that. But rather, what we see is God's plan. Rather, we see God's plan, which is not simply that human words, arguments, can convert anybody. If they could, then Jesus would have converted everybody. But what we see is that those who come to him have been given to him by God. And only those. What we see in Jesus is what we're supposed to see in us, in the pastor and in the church member, and how we all minister to the world in obedience, faithfully proclaiming the word of God in the spirit of God, because it is the word of God and the spirit of God that do what? That convert people. It is the spirit of God and it is the word of God that find those who have been given to bring them to life. And we see this in Jesus. We see it in the initial disciples to whom he called. Have you ever just sat and meditated on the moment when Jesus called his first disciples to follow him? The fishermen. What does he do? What does he say? I mean, does he go on this big, long diatribe about who he is and what he's going to do? No. He walks up to them and he says, follow me. And what happens? They just follow him. They leave everything behind and they go after him with everything they are. Why? Because they had been given to Jesus by the Father. Even Jesus doesn't need to go on long diatribes and convince and, and he just relies on the word of God and the spirit. They've been given. And if you're a Christian today, then guess what? You are a gift from the Father to the Son. You're a gift. You ever think about your life that way? You ever think that you are a gift from God the Father who's been in all eternity, who loves, and his love gift to his son is you? Wow. You're that valuable. You're that valuable. So church, I want you to see that we've been given. And this is who Jesus is praying for. He's praying for the elect. He's praying for those who've been given. And then what we see in verse 6 is that Jesus is praying for those who were given from out of the world. That's the phrasing that's used here. We build on the giving idea and we want to talk about what it means to be given out of the world. This is a really important phrase. And it's one that I, I fear too many of us, maybe all of us in some way, are missing something from. The Father has given us to Christ from out of the world. The reason why I think we, we, we miss this, we get so confused about this, is because when we get saved, our location remains the same. And we don't quite know what to do with that. Because the Bible tells us we're saved from out of the world, but then the Bible tells us, in fact, in John 17, that we need to be in the world. Church, when we get saved, when we are given from the Father to the Son, we are saved from out of the world. We're given from out of the world. Our location stays the same. But hear this, our home changes. So say you're sitting here today and you've never been saved and you get saved. Well, guess what? You're still sitting in the pew at Calvary, Lahana. You still live in the town of Lahana, Colorado. You still have the same family and the same friends you had before. Your location is identical to what it was before. What changes? Your home changes. Your home changes. Jesus says in verse 16, they are not of the world. He says this about the Christians. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Just as. That's a powerful word in Scripture when Jesus uses it of himself and his disciples. Where did Jesus originate from? Did Jesus originate on earth? 
Was the son always on earth? No. So just as the son, his real home, his true home is eternity in the presence of God the Father and the Holy Spirit, so too our home is there. It's not of this earth. We're going to deal with really what that looks like next week. I just want us to, to hear that really well. Because far too often we get far too confused and we continue on in the location and the home that we've always had. Our lives, the ones that we've had. When in reality, we should be living in longing for our true home. Living in longing for our true home. We are aliens out of place. We're aliens out of place. What does this look like? Well, I can paint a really simple picture for you. We all know that someone. That someone that moved from somewhere they loved begrudgingly. Right? We all know that someone. Some of us are that person. And what do we do? We talk about home. Right? We talk about home. We talk about the people that we left behind, the weather we left behind, the restaurants we left behind, the stores we left behind. We talk about everything from what we left behind because where we are now isn't our home. That is. Right? We all know that someone that just can't let go of the fact that we are not the South and that we have cold winters. Right? That, that we here in Lahana don't have fancy restaurants aplenty. Why? Because our home hasn't changed even though we moved locations. As Christians, our location is supposed to stay the same, but our home is supposed to move. What that does, and we know in that someone who came from that somewhere, is it causes them to never quite be connected. It causes them to never quite be at home where they are, to never quite fit in because they're not home and it's not okay with them. Christian, guess what? You're not home and it shouldn't be okay with you, which means you should not feel at home here, which means you should, in fact, feel disconnected from the things of this world. You should feel like this just doesn't fit. That the suffering and the pain and the agony and the depression and the violence and the anger and the cheating and the lying and all of these things that our world is built on just isn't right. And rather than endeavoring into those things, you live like you're actually in your true home. It's what it means to be in the kingdom of God. Is that we live as if we are in his kingdom, even though our location hasn't changed. All right, so Jesus is praying for the elect, for those given by the Father, those given out of the world. And then we see, verse 6, that Jesus is praying for those who have kept God's word. For those who have kept God's word. Look at me in verse 6 again. At the very end, Jesus has already said everything we've already said. And then he says, and they have kept your word. This is so plain. <laughs> what does it mean to keep God's word? I mean, usually when we talk about keeping his word, we talk about obeying the commandments, doing the things Jesus said to do, not doing the things that Jesus hadn't said to do. And that, I think, is all included in, in it. But that could get really depressing for us at some point here because, let's face it, you and I are terrible at consistently keeping God's word, right? I mean, for one, there's just too much to keep track of. But here's the thing. Think about when Jesus is praying this prayer, and, and you need to know that as he's praying this, he is using past tense verbs. He's talking about those who have been. He's talking about those people that I named. He's talking about his disciples. He's talking about those for whom have followed him. He knows who they are by name, right? Jesus has not yet died on the cross. 
Jesus has not yet been resurrected. Jesus has not yet given the Holy Spirit to his people. So what you have is a group of people that Jesus says have kept the word, but have been unable to do so. Right? Because until Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, we're not forgive a forgiven people. And until he's resurrected, we're not a raised to new life people. And until the Spirit comes into our lives as Christians, we are unempowered people. We're, we have no power. And yet Jesus uses past tense verbs to describe this group of people that he's praying for. How in the world is it possible that they have kept his word? Well, this should be encouraging to you <laughs> and to me. Because Jesus knows the heart of his followers. And though none of them are perfect, and though all of them keep failing miserably in sin, fear, pride, and a whole host of other disqualifiers, Jesus knows that they have kept God's word. It's either that or he's praying in vain. And I'm not sure Jesus ever did anything in vain. How? Well, we see it here as we continue on in our passage, particularly in verse 8. Here's what Jesus says, what he's praying. He says, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you have sent me. So what does it mean to keep God's word? Well, number one, it, it means to have received the truth. Now just take note that that only happens after the truth has been given. Okay? Now we have no control over that. That's God. He gives the truth. So to keep God's word means that we receive and know the truth. This is straight out of the passage here, verse 8. We receive it. Right? We accept it and we know, mind, what the truth is. Okay? Number two, we know that Jesus is from God. Right? There's a knowledge that happens. There's an understanding that happens that Jesus is from God. And then number three, believed that Jesus was sent. This is his description of those who keep the word. They've received it, they know it, and they've believed it. Now, is that you? Are you someone who has received the truth of God, who know the truth of God and believe the truth of God. Now, before you say yes to that, let me just remind you that the word believed in the New Testament, in particular, especially in the book of John, never means to understand or know something. It is not about a conviction. It is about action. Those in the book of John who believe live as if that thing is true. It goes beyond knowing and understanding. It lands in our actions. What does that mean? It means that we trust. Now, what does it mean to trust? Trust also requires action. Right? To trust in something is to lean into it. To trust in something is, is to know it's going to catch you. It is to act accordingly. But I've done a little bit of rock climbing in my life. And I have had to trust a harness and a rope and gear attached to a rock. Now, if I'm a good enough climber, I never need to trust any of that, do I? But if I'm a terrible climber, which I am, then I'm not going to start up that rock at all unless I do what? Unless I trust that if I fall, those things are going to catch me. Trust requires the action. Trust in what? First, trust in salvation. Do we trust that Jesus has done everything needed to do to be saved? Or do we continue to contribute works and good deeds and everything we can throw at it to attempt to do it ourselves? We need to trust in God's ways. Church, did you know that God has ways? <laughs> that when God thinks about how we should live our lives, how we ought to live our lives, there are certain things that he thinks we should do and shouldn't do. These are God's ways. Some of them are written, written in law form, right? In, in do this, don't do this. But most of God's ways are actually written in proverb form. 
in the daily wisdom to do the things as he is said to do them. To make decisions in wisdom, in God's wisdom, rather than the world's wisdom. Christian, do you ever think, do you ever look at your life and think and wonder, am I doing things the way God wants me to do them? Or am I doing things the way my parents taught me to do them? Or am I doing things the way my culture has taught me to do them? My friends, my family, my school. This is an important question. Because we say all the time that we trust God, but there's a lot of times when we, when we fail to trust God's way of doing things. And we do them our own way or we do them some other way. The third thing we need to trust in is, is promises. And scripture is full of promises. Things that God says he will do for sure for his people. Things that he says he will do against those who aren't his people. Do we trust God's promises and do we live lives that come out of that? See, here's the encouragement for, for, for all of us, I think, as we think about what it means to keep the word and we think about these first disciples, none of whom had the power to do it themselves, none of whom who could. James Mont Montgomery Boyce writes this of Jesus' disciples. He says, weakness, poverty of understanding, yes, but there was strength too. It was not their own. It was only the result of the words of Christ that by now had entered into them. But the words were within them. That is the point. Like a seed planted in fruitful ground, those seeds would sprout into the fruitfulness of fruitful spiritual life. That is what we really want to say, spiritually alive. Therefore, the Lord could be confident saying, they have received my words, they have known who I am, and they have believed on me, their Savior. Jesus is not expecting perfection of his people, but he is expecting that we have received his word, that we know his word, and that we believe it, not just with our minds, but with our lives. And that is what he means when he says, keep. And that is who he's praying for, people who have put their trust and belief in him and not in other things. Finally, what we see, and we're going to move to verse 10, is that Jesus is praying for those who glorify himself, who glorify Jesus. Here's verse 10. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. All right, this is pretty simple too, and, and you see the flow of this, right? If you're keeping God's word, you're doing things his way, then what are you going to do? Well, you're already glorifying him. Because you're already announcing to the world that you trust his ways. You're already announcing to the world that, that who he is is worth following. You're already announcing just by your actions and by your words that he's worthy. And that is the very essence of glorifying Jesus. Right? We glorify him when we sing praises and when we play music, when we pray, when we preach. We glorify him all the more with our lives lived for him. When upon our conversion to Christ, the old person that we were begins to be put to death and the family members and the friends around us who know us really well begin to say, man, something's changed about you. You're different. How'd that happen? And then you get to do what? You get to say, well, I met this guy named Jesus and he changed my life and he could change yours too. Right? Jesus says, I'm praying for those who glorify me, who have glorified me, those who seek to live for me, those who long for our real home. There's another way to glorify Jesus too, and I think we leave this one forgotten a lot of the time because we are a prideful people who don't like to be shamed. I think one of the biggest ways that we can glorify Jesus is by confession and repentance and owning when we're really bad at this. As a parent, I mess up all the time. I mean, I don't know how many times I sin every day as a parent alone, right? Whether it's raising my voice at the wrong time, overreacting to something, getting mad at my kids for something I just did three minutes ago, 
You know what I think the best way to glorify my kids when those things happen? Or glorify Jesus with my kids when those things happen? It's by going to my kids and saying, Mary, I messed up. By saying, Eli, I, I, I got upset and I shouldn't have. I overreacted to this. Will you forgive me? Church, one of the best ways that we as a church get to glorify Jesus is by offering forgiveness when people have messed up. One of the best ways that we glorify Jesus as sinners is by coming before him and saying, God, I've done this. And by going before other people and saying, look, I did this thing. When we do that, what we're really doing is saying to Jesus, I know your ways are better than my ways. My ways would cause me to hide this and, and let nobody know about this so that nobody will judge me or think badly of me. But Jesus says, no, bring it all out into the light. It's going to come out in the light anyway. Bring it out in the light. Let it go. Jesus is praying for those who glorify him. Church, as we look at this, I just want to say again, these are who he's praying for. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus says again here, I'm not praying for everybody else. I'm only praying for them, this small, tiny group of people. At this point, it's 120, max, who love him, who follow him, who are trying to glorify him. He says, I'm praying for them. Those who we have seen were given because they were own. Those who we have seen are elected by God, given to Jesus from out of the world. Those who have kept his word, receiving it, knowing it, and believing it, and glorifying Jesus. Those are whom Jesus is praying for. Now, some of you might be sitting here thinking, all right, well, what are you talking about? Because you've been using the word you and we and me this whole time. If Jesus is praying for just this 120 people, how have I just spent the last 30 or so minutes talking to you about who Jesus is and telling him that he's praying for us? Well, because I kept reading scripture and you didn't. Verse 20, Jesus says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. What does Jesus do here? Jesus takes the category he's been praying for so far, the 120, give or take, men and women that are following him, that love him, that have been serving him. And then he says, in expansion of that, those two who will believe me in or through their word. Right? So what he's saying is that, hey, Calvary Lahana, I was praying for them, now I'm praying for you. He expands it, right? So now everything he's going to say, he's saying about them and everybody else. Here's the really powerful thing that we see here. His words here are those who will believe in me through their word. Whose word? That 120. That first group that he was lifting up, that he's praying for. See, Jesus' prayer is ever-expanding. It starts with his disciples, a handful of followers, and it turns into a prayer for and through every generation. Prayer is expanded by his disciples' words as they tell the story. You and I are sitting here in, in this church right now because generation upon generation upon generation upon generation upon generation upon generation upon generation opened their mouths and told someone their story. And Jesus says, this prayer is effective for all of them, as far forward as that goes. A amen? Church, we are included in Christ's prayer because we had faithful grandparents and parents and aunts and uncles and pastors and those who have come before us who have shared what God has done in their life because somebody shared what God has done in their life and so on and so forth. Your name is included in this list of people being prayed for. 
along those of Peter and Andrew, James and John and Mary and Martha. We also have the Wendy's and the Kellys and Jane's and the Fevas, Scott and the Sherry's, the Alex's, the Carol and Lorenzes. Right, I can keep going. And keep going. Because Jesus' prayer is so big that it includes everybody moving forward. Now, I've already told you next week we're going to take a look at what he prays for us, for his people. And I'm really looking forward to that. It's going to be really awesome. Jesus has been praying for you from this moment and into eternity. Romans 8, 30 through 34, which comes right after that section on election that I read uh, at the beginning of the sermon. Here's what, what Paul writes right after that, starting in Romans 8.31. He says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Verse 34, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That word interceding means he's praying for us, even now. Jesus himself prayed for you 2,000 years ago. Jesus himself is still praying for you every single day, bringing your name before God the Father and saying, hey, look at Alex. And look at Ryan. Say, look at Rick. That's terrifying to some of us. We're like, Jesus, stop pointing me out to your father. But the Father is good and gracious. And when the Father's attention is on you, we read in Scripture that what he's seeing is the Son. See, Jesus isn't saying, hey, look at Ryan's sin. Look what he did over there, man. Look at, look at Ryan and his sin. No, he's saying, look at Ryan. Look, what he's, look at me. <laughs> That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, Father, when you see Ryan, see me. I'm interceding for him. Jesus is praying for you if you are a Christian. He is praying for you if you are one of his own. He is lifting you up. And I just want to say that this might be the thought that gets you out of bed tomorrow morning. This might be the thought that gets you out your door to go knock on your neighbor's door and say, hey, I want to tell you about Jesus. This might be the thought that helps you kick that addiction, that thing that's been hidden in your life for decades. God is for you. Christ is right now praying for you. Even as we speak. I was laying in bed this morning and I was really tired. And I, I, oh, the Lord spoke to me, sort of. He said, I'm praying for you right now. Get out of bed. I tell you, nothing has ever gotten me out of bed at four in the morning so quickly as to realize Jesus is praying for me right now. Now let me just say, maybe this isn't you. I mean, you hear the description of those Jesus praying, you say, you know what, pastor, that's not me. That's, that's not me. I don't even know if I'm one of the elect. I don't know if God has given me. I know that I don't believe. I know that I don't obey. I don't keep the word. Here's the really cool thing about Jesus' prayer in this. It's future acting. What that means is that if you're hearing this right now and you're thinking, you know what? That does not describe me, but I want it to. It means that he's praying for you to come to him. He wants you to choose to follow him, to give him your life, to trust in him with everything, to give up your old life, to give up the old despair, 
the old anxiety, the old sin, and to say, I want to keep your word. I believe you. I trust you. And the moment that any one of us, if you're not saved yet, the moment any one of us gets saved, that prayer, all of this prayer, suddenly becomes true and effective for you. In that moment. You're not excluded, even if you have been, because you haven't believed and you haven't trusted in him. So if you're hearing this and this describes you, then I just want to tell you today's the day. Right now. Don't wait another day because he is praying for you right now. If you're going to come, come now. Amen? Don't wait. Don't say, all right, I got some things to do first or, or I've got to figure it out first or I've got to clean up my act first. No, today's the day. And if that's you, I want you to come find me after church or Scott or anybody here you know who loves Jesus, <laughs> okay? Or even if you think they love Jesus, if they have no idea how to talk to you about coming to Christ, then they're going to come find us anyway. And we'll have a conversation. I don't want you to wait. I want you to come to know that he's praying for you today. To let that be the thing that leads you every day for the rest of your life. That he is praying for you. So right now, would you pray with me as we close? God, we thank you so much. God, we are simply humbled to know that the creator of the universe, the one who made us, the one who died on the cross for us, is even at this very moment praying for us, lifting us up to the Father, interceding on our behalf, defending us. And God, I pray that we would be people who live that way. I mean, what can't we do if, if you're the one who's praying for us as we do it? God, and I pray that you would open our hearts up to this. If there is anyone in this room right now who is not, I pray, Lord, that today would be the day that they come forward. They come before you, God, and that they would believe. They would know who you are. And they would put their trust and their faith in you. God, I thank you so much for your word, which is so clear. It's so exciting to get to preach clear things. God, that you are good and that you love us and that you care for us. I pray, Lord, that we would... As we continue in this time, Lord, into the Lord's Supper and into worship, uh, our last song, Lord, that you would fill our hearts, God, that they would be in response to what we've heard today. God, we thank you and we praise you. We come before you in the name of Jesus, who we know is even right now interceding for us. Amen.